unity as a gospel priority. Unity as a gospel priority. Um, for two reasons. Uh, first off, the necessity of unity simply in, in our ability to carry out the gospel, to, to walk in our Lord's ways, to go forth uh, in ministry and in mission in this world, such that we would not be like a thousand toothpicks moving in a, in a thousand different directions, but rather bound together like a mighty, powerful, battering ram smashing up against the fortress, the walls of the enemy. So that would be one, the necessity of unity just in terms of our carrying out the gospel. But there's another, and that is the necessity of unity to validate the gospel, that we might be a living demonstration. The way that we live together, the way that we love one another, the way that we respond to interpersonal uh, differences and difficulties and conflict together. How we do that being a living demonstration of the gospel, therein validating the truth and reality of the gospel to the watching world. Um, I was reminded of that just this past week. Uh, that that necessity uh, was forwarded in an article. Some of you may have heard of this about Sunday assemblies. It's a it's a new trend in different cities around the country where people will gather together, not too much unlike what we're doing here on a Sunday morning, and they'll, they'll sing, and there will be a, a certain topics uh, that are brought up, and maybe a special speaker. Sounds kind of like this, doesn't it? Except with this one major distinction, and that is there is no tie whatsoever to any one religion. These Sunday assemblies, and it's, it's a growing trend, especially in larger metropolitan Areas. Now, I will tell you, my first reaction to this was to scoff and to scorn and to, to just declare right out, oh, that's not going to last, that's not going to take, that's just going to fall apart. And there's a truth to that, I think. But then as I took a step back and I calmed down just a little bit, and I began to, to think through some of the reasons given by people who are attending these sorts of gatherings, and, and some of the heart's hurt that's driving some of that, and how some of them grew up in churches and have given up on that, and are now part of things like this, I began to ask this question. What was it that drove them to that? What sort of disillusionment and disappointment did they experience in a local church that drove them into something like a Sunday Assembly. I think that kind of thing, that kind of trend, begs questions and reflection like that and maybe even tears on our part. Because unity is meant to be a gospel priority. Unity is meant to be a gospel priority. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me now to the book of Ephesians. This is uh, one of Paul's letters. We know that he wrote it while in prison in Rome uh, sometime roughly around the year 60 A.D. Uh, if you're trying to find it, it's after the book of Galatians. Uh, it's early on through the stretch of the letters that we find in the book of the New, Te in the New Testament. We've got the Gospels and Acts and Romans and the Corinthian letters and Galatians and Ephesians. 
in Ephesians. We're going to look at just a, a few verses in chapter 4 of this letter. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Hear now God's word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Would you pray with me? Lord, just thinking about the image we were reminded of there from Psalm 133, of the oil cascading down Aaron's beard. A beautiful image. Uh, the snow up there upon Mount Hermon as uh, it melted and life then coming to the valleys below in the dew. This, this unity, this oneness, this life then coming from that and your declaration how good and pleasant it is when your people live together as one. And that sounds really good. And, and there's not a one of us that is repelled by that in theory. It's just that we're pretty bad at it in practice. We need your help. We, we need a rekindled vision here and a continually rekindled vision here. Uh, this is a, a supernatural calling and a supernatural work. It's, it's not something that we would tend towards in ourselves and certainly not something that we would pursue, I even desire to pursue in the right way ourselves. And so we ask that you would help us in this uh, time as we're reflecting on this for just a few minutes. Give us, give us your heart, we pray. Amen. You can most often get a pretty good read, get a pretty good gauge on someone's priorities when you look at how they spend their time, and not just on how they spend their time, but how they spend their time when their time is short. Case in point, if you're about to leave for an extended period of time on a trip, leaving home, uh, how you spend the days, the hours leading up to that departure, and who you spend it with, is going to be telling, right, as to who and what your priorities are. Has to be. Uh, the same is true when you know you're going to die. How you spend that time and who you spend it with is going to be pretty telling in terms of your priority, in terms of what's your, your passion, what's driving you. Jesus is really, truly, the only one who really, truly knew when he was going to die. Because he alone did not have his life taken from him, but gave it. 
And so it's interesting to see when he knew his time was short, who he spent his time with and how he spent it with them. If you look at the gospel accounts, what you see is that on the night before he was betrayed, he spent time with his friends celebrating what we refer to and have referred to in the century since and have emulated in the century since as the Last Supper. A little on, later on that evening, he spent time in prayer with his father there in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me now to John's Gospel. We have a record of what he prayed. Astonishing. It's absolutely astonishing. We actually have that record. Uh, he, he wants us to see this. He wants us to, to understand what, what his heart is. And if you look through the course of this prayer, John 17, you see it's basically in three sections. One, Jesus is praying for himself as he is about to enter into this terrible trial and ordeal. The second part is he is praying for his friends, praying for his followers, his disciples, as they are going to go through and experience this transition and the difficulties of all that's going to, to mean for them. And then in the last section, starting there in verse 20, he is praying for, and it's quite clear, those who will believe in him, those who will take hold of this gospel message through the testimony of these men, of his, uh, his immediate followers. And that would be, folks... Who is that? In the century sense, that is the church. That is us today. So as you look here in John 17, starting in verse 20, you want to know what Jesus' heart is for us? You can see it in how he's praying. Now, with that in mind, let me read to you these verses here, just, just verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Did you, did you catch this? Three times. In that short span, three times, he expresses his passion and the priority of the unity, the oneness of his people. His, his longing, his heart that, that families, that, that friendships, that community groups, that ministry teams, that the way we live together Warts and all would be markedly different than the way it was before we were following him and the way it is outside of the realm and the circle of those who follow him. Something, something markedly different. Jesus is showing here that the, the unity of the church is his priority. It is his passion and his priority. And it has to be ours as well. That is the immediate, logical causal ramification and consequence of all of that. The unity of the church is our Lord's passion and priority. It has to be His churches as well, even ours, especially 
especially ours. Now, this book of Ephesians is what Paul is writing here in Ephesians 4 is very much connected to what we just read in John 17 for a variety of reasons. As some of you may know, I said this a moment ago, Paul, the apostle, this um, authorized agent of the Lord Jesus, some three decades after Jesus has prayed these words that you see there in John 17, Paul is writing from a Roman prison to this church in the city called called Ephesus, and he is writing this letter that when you read through it, it you know most New Testament scholars will tell you if you want to find a, a letter in the New Testament that tells you the most, that seems to be focused most and intently on the purpose and the calling of the church, that's the letter to the Ephesians. And here in, in this letter, Paul is speaking the very thing as his Lord. The, the, the vital nature of, of the unity, the oneness of the church. And you see it here in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. And what Paul is pointing at are two things that I want us to look at here together. First, the, the need to see, what else call it this, this way, to, to, the need to see further, and coupled with that, the need to strive harder. And they're connected. First, the need to see further, and then the need to strive harder. Let's look at the first, and we'll move to the second. What do I mean? See, to see further. What is that about? Let's look at verses 4 through 6. What is the, the deep truth? Uh, the thing behind the fog that we need to see, that the, the apostle is putting here before us. Verses 4 through 6. There is, is speaking about the church, the family of God. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now that's a magnificent picture. Oh my goodness, what, what a vision that Paul is casting there before us, which begs a question. What's up with that? Um, it, it points to our frustrated experience, this gross dichotomy between what we see in the churches that we know, and including this one, warts and all, the frustrated experience between what we see and what we hear and read of here, right? There are times that they don't seem to match up very well. Kind of missing one another. And uh, what do we make of that? Well, first let me say this, that it's a, it's a consistent problem. True of every church, and it has been through the history of the church. If you read the New Testament, no one gets out of here unscathed. Every one of the churches that is, every one of these letters, it's the reason you see the admonitions and the commands that you do from the apostles in terms of what it means to love one another. Why do they have to be told that, do you think? Because they're not. Because they're not. It's not our default mode. Our default mode is not to do this well or to do this poorly. And so we have to be told, and you, so you see this in every one of the letters of the New Testament, every one of the churches was struggling with this. It's, it's sort of the dark side, if I can put it this way. It's the dark side of the fact that Jesus takes us, every one of us, just as I am without one plea. That's really good news. Oh my goodness, is that good news, that we don't have to, you know, he doesn't wait for us to have our act together before he takes us, right? 
In fact, it's despite the reality that none of us has our act together that then he takes us, right? But here's the dark side of that. He takes us just as we are. All of our mess. And then we end up with a group of mess. Because he's taken every one of us just as he found us, you see. We are all works in process. Every one of us. So the church is a mess. The relationships are a mess. Our families are a mess. That's why. Because this fancy term sanctification is a process. It's not instantaneous. The work goes on. It begins, but it goes on and on and on. Now, that's our frustrated experience. Behind all of that is the spiritual reality that Paul is describing here and unpacking for us here. This unity, the unity of... What's what he's saying? The unity of the church is not imaginary, it's real. What he has described here is not imaginary, it's real. It's just that it's not always visible. In fact, sometimes it's hidden, it's invisible. And what Paul is saying here is that it is up to us, it is our calling, it is our charge to make the invisible visible. To see this, to see further than what we see. To see who and what the church is and her unity. And to act out of that, to live out of that, to, to bring all of that to bear. You, you, did you notice here what he says in verses 4 through 6? Seven times, seven times in verses 4 through 6, he, he uses this word one. You get the feeling there's an emphasis he's trying. Some, you know, repetition maybe that's going on there. In fact, so, some uh, Greek scholars say that it, he may well be alluding to an ancient hymn or perhaps a, a, a baptismal creed of some kind, and it may be what he's, he's quoting from there. We're not sure, but, but the, the point being that the reality, that the unity of the church, there's a security to it. There's a, a groundedness to it. And it's God himself. It's the nature and the work of God himself. It's a, tri it's, a, it's a triune reality. Well, look at the, what, what he says here. I mean, there in verse 6, I mean, this family comes about because of the Father. There is one hope. There in verse uh, 4, one, verse 5, one faith, one baptism, because there is one Son, one Lord. There's one body, looking there at verse 4, there's one body because it's created by one spirit. This is, this is a triune reality, the unity of the church. In fact, what Paul is saying here is, is some, I guess we could summarize it this way, and that is the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. You can know more Split the church, then you can split God. Now, think about that next time you hear of a church split. It's not split. Not really. You understand what I'm saying here? The deeper reality to see behind the fog, behind the appearances... Now, what that tells us is it's all the more a tragedy. The relational rifts that are taking place in whatever it is that's going on there, 
But the church is not split. God is not split. The church cannot be split. There is a oneness there, an inescapable, a permanent, eternal. And, and so what, what Paul is trying to say to us here is, in order for us to adopt our Lord's priority for the unity of the church, we have to begin to see this way. We have to see the church the way he sees the church. And act out of that, live out of that. And then the second thing would be to ask him, to ask him to help us do that. To ask him to help us in our relationships with one another, whatever sphere we're talking about, to make the invisible visible, this triune unity that the apostle is writing of here, and live that out. And that takes me to the second point. And that is, now, having, as we're seeing further, we should be striving harder. Because of what we're seeing, we should be striving. Now that we know what we're, we're talking about here. And that's verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 6 are the rationale for everything that he's saying in verses 1 through 3. What is he saying? Verses 1, let's go back and read it. I, therefore, a prisoner... For the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul is, is describing to us, a, a, you might say, a found, first a foundation that's beneath the life, the everyday life, the living, the ins and outs, the day-to-day -day of, of the church. This foundation, but now what's the first thing? The first thing is oftentimes telling. The first thing it said is... is, is so revealing. Oftentimes in the life of the church, it's, it's hard to figure out, okay, what exactly should we be giving ourselves to? And this, we had an interesting discussion just last week in the budget meeting, you know, this priority and this priority, and some good stuff was talked about there. And it's sometimes hard to think through, you know, where are we going to put this energy and this attention and this kind of thing? There's no confusion here. Let's not be confused. There is no confusion here. Let's not be unclear here. There is great clarity here. I mean, and Paul spends the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians unpacking God's grace to us in Christ. Verses 4 through 6 is the so what. Okay, built off of everything I have said now in chapters 1 through 3, here's how you should live in response as a consequence of all of that. Or if I can put it this way, now that I've given you the indicative Here's the imperative. Here's, I'm telling you, there's a way. There's a way to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. My goodness, what is that? The first thing. Love and unity. Oneness is the top. Above all else, whatever else you're giving yourself to, that that sits above it all. And then he unpacks that just a little bit and gives us, after, you might say, after the first thing, he gives us four things. Four things to do to carry out the first thing. Verses 2 through 3, right? Our lives should be characterized by humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. My goodness, can you imagine? Just think with me for a moment. Do a relational inventory. How many of the messes between us could be solved if we took those four things to heart? 
how many of the messes between us could be prevented, say nothing of solved, if we took those things to heart, humility and gentleness and patience and forbearing and love. Okay, well now after having given the foundation beneath all of this, you might say the what we're to do, he then gives us the fire within, the how to do it. Verse 3, do these things, these four things. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's what's to um, soak through all of that, this eagerness. Now, first a clarifier. You note there what Paul says. He doesn't say, make yourselves one. He says, maintain it. Ours is not to create anything here. Ours is to maintain something. Um, ours is to preserve and demonstrate what Jesus has already accomplished and established. The eternal oneness of the church. And we're to live out of that. We're to walk in a way consistent with that. We don't make that. Okay, that's your clarifier. Now let's talk about this. The urgency with which we are to preserve and demonstrate and maintain this. The urgency, the, there's this imperative, I, I, several commentators were talking about this, I was reading this past week, that, that, that it's difficult in the English to capture the, the strength of what Paul is saying here in verse 3. This, this urgency, this sense of spare no effort, this continual diligence, that we are to be pouring into this effort. Give it everything you've got. Hold nothing back. That's the sense in which he's saying what he is there in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's not optional. You don't need to think about this. Just do this. It's so vital. It's so Critical. It reminds me of something in Ken Sandy, the author of The Peacemaker, is fond of using this analogy at this point, so I've got to give him the credit uh, for this. Um, it, the, the image is really, in many ways, from the gladiatorial arena. Um, think uh, Kirk Douglas, Spartacus, right? Or a generation later, Russell Crowe, gladiator. Okay? So, Think with me, it's, it's a brutal sport. Let's say, you can use that word. It's a brutal sport. There's not a lot of gray hair there in the, in the gladiatorial arena. Um, not a, not a, long, a lot of long careers. Not a lot of long tenure there for the gladiatorial arena. What's the job description of a gladiator? Stay alive. Right? Do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, claw, bite, whatever, stay alive. That's the strength of the language that Paul is using here in verse 3. So do those things. Do those things. Live out that calling in the humility and the gentleness and the patience and the forbearance like a gladiator eager to maintain 
the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see, what Paul's getting at here is that the unity of the church is not a light thing. Not, certainly not, a, not an optional thing. We are in a fight. A fight with the highest stakes. Hold nothing back. Give yourself to this. Know that there is an enemy. And by the way, oh, wait a minute. It's not who you think. It's not this person. It never is. Ultimately, the enemy is never the person that you think is standing in your way, who is the opposition, who is the distraction, who is the discouragement. No. No. The enemy is Satan himself, our adversary, which means we go into this fighting like gladiators, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, fighting, but never in our strength, but in the strength of the commander-in-chief. Because our enemy is too much for us, but never too much for him. And so we get into this, and we fight like gladiators for peace. Why? Because the unity of the church is our Lord's priority. And so it has to be ours. It has to be ours. The, God, the unity of the church is a gospel priority. Now, I want to end with this. Some things require intentionality. They demand effort. They demand focus on our part. They're too important just to hope that it happens and turns out well, and there's too much fighting against it, too much resistance, whether internally or externally. So you've got to be intentional about it. I'll give you an example. Let's say you go to the doctor, Okay. And the doctor says, oh, I'm sorry. You need some work. Um, and you know what? You're, you're in a mess. And, and, and if we're going to clean this up, you need to go on a diet. And you need to exercise. And if you don't, you're going to die. You think there's some intentionality maybe required with this now? For, for one thing, because the stakes are so high. For another, because of your family history. For another, because it's your personal long-standing habits that got you into this mess. And for another, you have no support system around you. You think maybe there might be some intentionality called for if you're going to be healthy? Absolutely. It's no less true with the peace and unity of the church. The stakes are so high the necessity of carrying out the gospel, the necessity of validating the gospel, but none of this comes naturally to us. Oh, oh, peace faking comes naturally. Peace breaking comes naturally, but not peace making. It's not the way we're wired. It's not our default. It just doesn't come to us. Not smoothly. But it's our Lord's passion. He's commanded us to do this. He's given himself for us for this. We're his followers. We can't get around this. May he give us ears to hear and hearts to pursue it. Pray with me. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see as you do who we are the unity of the church that is as indestructible as you are. 
Help us to see all the more your passion that the gospel would be carried forth, that the gospel would be demonstrated, and even through us. We ask that you'd help us to give ourselves to this. Whatever other things we may do, whatever other things may grab our hearts, may this coat and soak through and come forth in all of that. In each of us, every one of us, and all of us as well together. We ask these things in the name of the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus. Amen.